Welcome to the Global Governance Podcast, where we explore the future of governance. Each episode will look at a different global issue and how governance plays a key role in its solution. From climate change to gender equality, from corruption to peace and security, we invite experts to explore a thought-provoking game of what if and why not, positing a world in much closer international cooperation. I'm Amanda Ellis, Lead for Global Partnerships at the ASU Julianne Wrigley Global Futures Laboratory, and I'm thrilled to have with me one of the world's preeminent climate scientists, Johan Rockström. Johan is Director of the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research, Professor at the Institute of Earth and Environmental Science at Potsdam University, and Professor in Water Systems and Global Sustainability at Stockholm University. He gained international recognition with the development of the Planetary Boundaries Framework. Johan is also the Chief Scientist of Conservation International and chairs the advisory board for the EAT, EAT Initiative on Health, Food and Sustainability. He is also the co-chair of the Earth League and the Earth Commission. I could go on and on, but you will be able to read Johan's bio at the link. Johan, we're thrilled to have you with us today. Thank you so much for ducking out of the Congress mm. and making time for this interview. I would love you to tell our listeners who are mostly global governance experts about how your very influential planetary boundaries framework is beginning to influence policy. I know it needs mm. to influence it a lot more, but how are you seeing that happen? Yeah, no, thanks. Thanks. Great to, to be with you here. And uh, and it's the right spot to discuss exactly that topic because we we see the planetary boundary framework being you know referred to and taken seriously increasingly here at the World Economic Forum since many years actually and and let me just start by by saying that you know when 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 I invited uh, scientists across the world in 2007 to for the first time explore what are the Earth system processes and systems that regulate the stability of the whole Earth system. And can we define scientifically boundaries that can give us a safe space if we stay within them, but which could trigger irreversible changes and potentially tipping points if we go beyond them? In 2007, our objective was really to advance science. I mean, the whole purpose was to recognize that here we have 30 years of, of extraordinary advancement in, you know, the notion of the Anthropocene, that we're now in a whole new geological epoch and putting, you know, planetary scale pressures on the Earth system that tipping points are real, that we have so much evidence that the Holocene, the geological epoch that we're leaving, is the only state of the planet that can support humanity. Put that, all that together, and it's, of course, a conclusion that we are a global force. We, as humanity, are now a global force. We need to have science define you know, the guardrails, the boundaries, the, 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 the safe fence within which we can have a chance of handing over to our kids and their future generations a livable planet. So we produced the first scientific uh, publication in 2009, and, and it immediately raised an enormous uh, debate in the scientific community, of course, because, you know, when, when scientists put out numbers, oh, my God, it just explodes. And, and we've got thousands of publications criticizing and, and turning it upside down and really hammering down exactly as science should work. You know, it was just a, a beautiful process up until 2015. We were able to publish the first update, 
which really, you know, synthesized every all the critique that had come and all the advancements. And many scientific groups have started to do their own updated quantifications, just as science should advance. And what we concluded in 2015, which was a real pivotal point, was that, you know, nobody suggested a tenth boundary, but nobody suggested to to delete the boundary. It's it's one thing that we felt sure, certain about it in 2015 is we probably got it right. You know, be stewards of these nine. And they will come as no surprise to anyone, really. It's, of course, climate, but it's not only climate. It's also the stratospheric ozone layer that protects us against, you know, dangerous UV radiation. It's what we call the biosphere boundaries, nature, biodiversity being one, land system change, I mean, basically deforestation, the overuse of the bloodstream of the whole Earth system, namely the hydrological cycles so of fresh water, and then the two sister cycles of the carbon cycle, namely nitrogen phosphorus cycle, the nutrient cycles. So these are the four biosphere boundaries. And then you have what we call the alien boundaries, the ones that we have created ourselves. Uh, chemical pollutants, I mean, everything from nuclear waste to organic pollutants, persistence in organic pollutants and, and microplastics, but also aerosols, you know, how we're loading air pollutants, which are changing the functioning of the monsoon systems. And if you put all these together, you have adding ocean, ocean stability that we represented ocean acidification. These are the nine boundaries, and we were able to quantify them. And it's not until 2015 that, you know, we start seeing businesses really saying there's something going on here. And, and why did that happen at that time? Well, it was, of course, that we're finally making some progress on climate, finally coming to a point where we could define the planetary boundary on climate, 1.5. It came to Paris. We had actually published the, the climate planetary boundary in 2009 and put it at 1.5. I mean, many, many years before the IPCC even considered it. And so we started to see that this uh, sense of, yes, you know, cities, countries, businesses really need to have science-based targets to guide the development, but also rising recognition that if you really want to have a safe landing on Earth, it's not enough to just keep the carbon cycle intact. You want to keep the water cycle, the nitrogen cycle, the phosphor cycle, the land system, biodiversity intact. So that is where we saw almost like an, like an explosion of, uh, of interest, you know, from countries like Finland, Switzerland, the Netherlands, Sweden, and New Zealand, actually adopting, bringing science in and saying, could you please develop a scientific assessment of what do these planetary boundaries mean for the New Zealand economy? We want to transform our agriculture we need to know what are the boundaries within which the whole agricultural system needs to stay. What's our responsibility? What's our share of the global budget on nitrogen? And, and that has basically almost been, a, you know, for a scientist, almost a bit uh, mind-boggling to be drawn into that kind of policy, business, national journey. And today, the planetary boundary framework is, is still, you know, we're still advancing the natural science of it, but also doing much more of the interdisciplinary science and operationalizing these boundaries. And that's where the Earth Commission comes in, for example. So the Earth Commission is the first attempt to kind of do a, an IPCC for the planet, but strictly speaking, it is about, you know, looking at the planetary boundary science, but also beyond planetary boundary science, because there are other attempts of quantifying safe targets for individual boundary processes. And how do we even translate that not only to safety, but also to justice. How do we share, you know, the carbon budget or the phosphorus budget in a, in a fair way? So it's been quite a journey on the planetary boundary science. We are right as we speak, 
finalizing the third scientific update on the planetary boundary science. So in a few weeks' time, we'll be submitting it to science. It will go through peer review, so let's see if it survives. But I can share with you already now a bit preemptively that in 2014, we concluded that four of the nine boundaries were outside of the safe space. So it was climate, biodiversity, overloading of, of nitrogen and phosphorus, and land system change, deforestation. In 2022, I'm afraid to, you know, not surprisingly, but unfortunately, we will conclude that six of the nine boundaries are outside of the safe space. So, so, so we're continuing to move in the wrong direction. And this is extraordinary, given that in 2015, which was really a watershed year in the UN system, we not only had the Sendai Declaration on Disaster Risk Reduction, and we know those linkages, but of course, we also had the Sustainable Development Goals, and yes. which, which did try to represent integrate an integrated framework. And then, of course, we had the Paris Accords. Why do you think we are heading in the wrong direction still, hmm. despite the fact that there's been these incredible scientific and policy breakthroughs in terms of recognizing the need for an interconnected and transdisciplinary approach mm. to these big issues. No, and, uh, and just to be, be clear of how, how, how challenging this is, so, so not only are we now transgressing six of the nine boundaries, the four that we had transgressed in 2015 are in a worse state than in 2015. So, so, so they're all moving deeper into the red. And, and I should say that you know, you don't have to understand every detail. What, what I find is most important to understand is the following. Climate change is, is the single most important shock to the system. So we are loading so much, so much energy imbalance into the atmosphere. And when you do that, when, when, you, when you hit any system with a shock, you want it to be in, in a very robust, healthy, resilient state to absorb that shock. So a healthy planet can actually absorb quite a lot of global warming because it has this inbuilt resilience. But the problem is that now we are reducing the resilience of the whole system because transgressing all the other boundaries means that the ocean is weaker, the land system is weaker, the water cycle is weaker to buffer you know, carbon sequestration, absorbing temperature in the ocean, all the buffering functions, the resilience of the system is at its weakest point. So, you know, we are in a really bad, it's a, it's a bad coincidence that when we need a healthy planet more than ever because of the climate stress, we have a weaker planet than ever. And, and that is not a good position to be in. So that's where we start from. And how can that be? Why, why have we not stood up and, and faced these crises before? Well, that is, of course, not only the million, but probably the trillion dollar question yes. out there. But there's, I mean, the first thing one should recognize is that, I mean, as you said, Amanda, I mean, Paris was, uh, you know, a milestone. Uh, the SDGs were a milestone. Uh, we have signed over 500 multilateral environmental agreements since, since the Stockholm Conference in 1972. It's not as if we haven't been trying. And, and you have alliances of countries and businesses and cities that, that are really doing uh, good progress. And if you look at the, at the positive hockey sticks on, on renewable energy and solar voltaics and wind, I mean, it's really impressive. But, but it's, the problem is that, uh, you know, the negative trends still overshadow the positive trends. We, we're not yet able to, to kind of counteract uh, the continued investments in, in fossil fuels and deforestation and degradation. And so on, on, on aggregate, we're still abusing the planet, not being stewards of the planet. 
And and I think that the reason why this is, it, there are many, and of course, explanations to this, but one explanation is that unfortunately these are creeping crises, meaning that the planet has this inbuilt resilience, meaning that it's a slow sliding in the wrong direction. It's not like we're falling over an escarpment suddenly. It's an escarpment in the sense that if you go too far outside of a boundary, it's irreversible. You cannot go back. So in that sense, it's a, it's a catastrophe. But it's a, it's a slow slide, which allows you know, policymakers and countries and economy to just continue believing that this is an incremental journey. So that's one. But the second thing is, of course, that you know, we have for 150 years allowed ourselves to build an economy that, that to begin with, has a planetary subsidy. All these planetary boundaries are transgressed, meaning that uh, we, we exploit without paying, we add value and build GDP and, and, and wealth, and then we pollute without paying. So, so, you know, all these transgressions are actually an expression of a subsidy from the planet to the GDP-driven economy. And that is so fascinating. I read recently that the OECD had estimated that the free ecosystem services to the planet were somewhere between 95 and $130 trillion. And similarly, when we... In, in a world economy of 90 trillion. Yeah, which is unbelievable. Yeah. So people are not aware. I think people also think that we're on a trajectory of, as you say, incremental change, but they don't realize that if we don't change, mm. as Nigel Topping, the high-level envoy for, for Britain to COP26 pointed out, the world economy could be 20 to 40% smaller mm. by 2050. In other words, we will all be worse off. And as an economist... I'm always staggered to read the IMF estimates of fossil mm. fuel subsidies, mm. both direct and indirect, 5.9 trillion no, it's, in it's, 2020. Uh, and the just problem. transition mm. estimate cost one to three trillion. Mm. And of course, you know, youth are quite understandably upset when they've been told pre-COVID there was no money. Mm. And then all of a sudden we spend a ton of money and only 23% mm. of it went to green investments, mm. more of the same. And of course, with the crisis in Ukraine, we've seen things head in the wrong direction mm. in many ways, although it is exciting to see a real recognition politically of the need to step mm. up investments in research and renewables. Tell me a little bit about the science-based targets and how you feel that business can play a role. We know governments have been somewhat mm. slower mm. In, in actually enacting commitments. I think we went into COP26 with 2.7 degrees and we mm. came out at 2.4 mm. and hence nationally determined contributions are being revisited this year. Do you think that business can be a genuine force for change in a way that governments have shown themselves less than able to date? Mm. I mean, to, to begin with, I mean, my, my experience of the last 10 years is that, you know, if uh, if, if, if this whole uh, journey was, uh, was a Tour de France race, then definitely the scientists have the yellow shirt up on front. We're, we're really far ahead. But, but business is trying to, you know, is, is just trying to keep pace with science and policymakers are way behind. And, and sometimes they, they come to the level of business, uh, big business at least, like in Paris, but the tendency is still that a policy has difficulty to really keep pace with what's happening on, on, on the advancements of knowledge. So unfortunately, you have to be right. And therefore, I think 
it is like a cycle race because for those of you who love cycling like I do, you know how it is. It's so much easier to cycle when you lie very, very close behind the leader. And, and so you need business and policy to hang in there with science and move forward together because that would speed up the whole transition. And, and what's the responsibility of business? Well, business must has come a long way uh, without communicating it very well that uh, sustainability has now completely changed face. It's become, you know, from a, an environmental responsibility, a moral responsibility, a corporate social responsibility, to today being the very glasses you put on to be competitive. You know, this is like, like the entry point for strategic investments. And just look at the car industry. I mean, basically, it's about survival of the industry. It's not about saving the planet. I mean, look at Germany. We interact quite closely with Volkswagen, Mercedes-Benz, Audi, BMW, big car makers that are, you know, basically every six months, they announce that they're pushing back, they're going even more rapidly towards uh, e-mobility. Um, they promised 2039 like Mercedes, now it's back to 2030. And, and of course, uh, climate sciences is one part of the puzzle, but it's also about surviving as a, as a luxury brand. I think this is incredibly positive because can you imagine if, if, if the company that in the end actually invented the diesel engine for passenger cars, Mercedes-Benz, uh, accelerates the pathway to e-mobility and can prove that that is also more attractive. It, it is just, if you want to be really modern, really high tech, really advanced, then you don't go internal combustion engine, you go electric. And that's what we need to start seeing. Businesses are able to show today that the sustainable routes give better outcomes, more competitive, better triple bottom line, but they also need to communicate it because the policymakers, you know, a car company can today say, yeah, we're, we're going all electric if the market allows. There's always that little, little last sentence segment. And what do they mean by that? Well, what they mean is that will policymakers invest in the charging infrastructure? Will policymakers help us redesign the cities? Will policymakers put the policies in place which, which forbids diesel run engines in the center of Davos or, or London or wherever you are. That's what we need to see. So, so it, is a, it is a kind of a, it really is a dance together. And, and so far, um, policy and business and science, in a way, have been allowed to be too disconnected. And, and I think we are in a very exciting moment now that in every sector of society, I mean, be it construction or food or mobility, on land or on ocean in the air, the technologies are starting to come forward in a way that is beyond piloting. I mean, it's really scalable. And not only on the scalable, if you, if you factor in the subsidies, you don't have to put a very high carbon price to outcompete the fossil fuel driven systems. And, and that just getting is, rid of the subsidies would probably take us a long way there. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, crazy. so I think business plays an important role. Here. And, and what role does, to come back to your question, then what role does science-based targets play in this? Well, you know, I think science-based targets is one of the missing pieces in the toolbox. I mean, we have many things in the toolbox. I mean, everything from carbon pricing to regulatory means to all our, you know, systems of, of, of reporting and monitoring and verification. But, you know, we haven't really brought forward and operationally offered businesses and cities and countries the scientifically based targets that you can uh, be be accountable against, and not only uh, accountable against, but to do it 
you know, in the next five years, 10 years, 50, not, not kind of in the next 50 years, but really the pathway. Like when we launched the carbon law in 2017 and published this heuristic that if you look carefully in the science in all the IPCC scenarios, they translate to a very simple heuristic, cut emissions by half every decade, and you follow the scientific pathway. The carbon law is today the guide of the science-based target initiative. So if a company joins SBTI, the best science-based target consortium, over 1,000 companies today, you follow the carbon law. What does the carbon law say? Well, it gives you exactly where you need to be 2025. That is really concrete. It means that for scope one, two, and three, you better start measuring. And I've seen some really exciting implications of this for front-running companies. I come back to Mercedes-Benz, where the CEO, Ula Shilenius, announced a few months back that, you know, from now on, we are following the carbon law. And uh, we're doing it, of course, for our internal emissions. But we're also sending a letter to all the suppliers, and they are many in the car company, Mercedes-Benz, and, and giving them five years. And in five years' time, we won't be able to buy your, your supplies um, unless they are following, you know, the SPTI pathway. So, you know, this, this, this is the kind of spillover effects that, and you see it with Unilever, you see it with Walmart, you see it with uh, Houdini, a really front-running textile company in Sweden, Ikea. You know, it's, it's, not, it's big and small everywhere in the world. It's starting to happen, but it's still only a small fraction of the companies. But I think companies really need to take that step. And then, of course, my advice is, well, you've done it for carbon, do it for biodiversity, do it for water, take it on for nitrogen, because we are working. We can now offer that from science. We have the science-based target network of the Earth Commission that plugs the planetary boundary science right into the SBT, the science-based target initiatives, and can help the translation of the science into operational, measurable targets. I think we're, you know, we're, we're, we're there with a quite interesting basket of, of um, science-based target knowledge that can be increasingly operationalized. Which is so exciting. And as part of our We Empower UN SDG Challenge initiative, and we standing for women entrepreneurs, given there are so many additional barriers for women to be in business and in supply chains, we have just launched a tool this year which allows them to measure scope one and scope two emissions, a learning tool mm. as part of the process. And we're piloting that with Procter & Gamble. So I think it's mm. really exciting thinking ahead, how is it that all of us in the ecosystem can begin to prepare small micro and small businesses too, to then be able to integrate into the scope three emissions of larger companies. Mm. So that's, a, I think, a wonderful example where we're all working together in a positive way. And in the US, of course, the Securities Exchange Commission recent uh, publication of what's coming down the pipe with climate is mm. also focusing business attention. So it's great when we see policy levers being used mm. in a positive way to encourage change. I'd love to ask you too about the carbon markets. with. Article 6 being pretty much settled after COP26, we really saw the carbon markets double. Mm. And how do you see the carbon markets being able to be deployed in a way where there is proper verification and measurement to help the global south as well as the rest of the world think about just transitions? Mm. Yeah, so let's let just start by saying that the, the carbon markets are really important, but they're also very complicated. And, and, and let me just 
separate them for a moment and, and focus first on the on, on on the mainstream carbon market, namely the the fossil fuel based carbon market, which which I think has um, has a bright future. Actually, <clears throat> I mean, I don't know how how long time we've been trying to scientifically make the case for a global price on carbon. It's always been shut down for very good reasons as being impossible. I think we're moving into a future where we are inevitably going to have a global price on carbon. How can that be? Well, it's simply because over 40 countries in the world of the 195 countries globally have a price on carbon to begin with. And the European Union, the world's largest economic region, has, has now, thanks to the adoption of its climate law, and, and it's a carbon law pathway, uh, a price on carbon, which is at the 100 euros per ton of carbon dioxide level. In that law, they also dis- decided to have a you know a border adjustment tax, the CBAM, which is this theoretical tool, which politically was, was seen as essentially impossible to implement. But the idea was that, you know, to not basically put, put an unjust competitive uh, this, uh, you know, a, a, a negative competitive edge for businesses in Europe, you have to have an import tax to compensate for that. They have such a high price on, on carbon within the European Union. That is, was protested by many countries in the European Union. But thanks to the fact that the price is now so high, it's almost inevitable that you need to have it because companies in Europe will never accept that they get outcompeted for cheap imports from China or elsewhere because of this, this very high tax uh, in, in Europe. So inevitably, the CBAM will start spilling over into the global system. So I think you'll start seeing a price on carbon simply just, just moving almost seamlessly across the world, thanks to the fact that, that the big players are starting to apply it. And we then, hope that the World Trade Organization will also begin to align with the scientific facts rather than ignoring yes. subsidies and allowing yeah. that, that that's what is it's, it's absolutely necessary and and as you know science shows clearly that you know even though 100 euros per ton of carbon dioxide is the world's highest carbon price on carbon it's only half of of the true social cost of carbon so if you really want to accelerate if you really want to phase out fossil fuels if you really want to represent the true cost of carbon when it comes to the impacts on humans it's relatively 200 euros, which is the correct price. And, and we, we foresee that it will continue moving in that direction. So that's one side of the carbon market side. The other side is, of course, the nature climate solution side, the whole carbon, the voluntary carbon market on, on investing in nature-based solutions or nature climate solutions. And, and this is also something that is growing very fast and the interest is enormous and that's very positive. The trouble is, that it doesn't have a scientifically robust framework. And, and many companies um, allow themselves to misuse it because it's used as an offsetting to give the impression that you are uh, basically following what science requires, but basically it's just used as a way to compensate for the inability to follow the carbon law on phase out on coal, oil, and natural gas, which is not allowed because scientifically it's absolutely clear, even the IPCC makes absolutely clear that the only reason why we can have a safe landing on, on oil, coal, and natural gas by reaching net zero by 2050, following the carbon law, cutting emissions by half every decade, is that in all the climate models that allows that, you have already factored in and assumed that nature will continue absorbing 
25% of CO2 emissions in intact nature. And that, in the oceans? So that's, yeah, and that is 25% mm-hmm. in oceans, 25% on land. So roughly 10 billion tons in ocean, 10 billion tons on land. We emit 40 overall. But not only that, the models assume that the agriculture system managed nature will go from 12 gigatons, billion tons of carbon dioxide emitted today to become a sink of roughly 10 in the second half of this century. So to put it simple, the only reason why we can have a safe landing on phasing out fossil fuels is that we already assume massive investments in nature-based solutions, making food production a sink, now it's a source, and ensuring that no ecosystems cross any tipping points. The Amazon rainforest stays intact, the temperate forest stays intact, everything stays intact. Is this possible? Well, yeah, perhaps, but it will require massive investments in nature climate solutions. So the voluntary carbon markets are, are you know, not only important, they're necessary, but, but we should not cheat ourselves. You cannot say, oh, now I'm, I'm uh, being a very proud investor in 100 units of nature climate solutions, so I tick them off against my inability to reduce 100 units of my fossil fuel-based emissions. Oh, no, you have to do both. You have to go down 100 on fossil fuels and invest in nature. So the most exciting companies in the world, for example, Netflix, have decided, you know, we want to be carbon neutral. I think it's 2023, 2024. What does that mean? Well, they follow the carbon law first, which means cutting emissions by half every decade, which means reducing by 7% per year. And then, of course, if you start with 100 units year one, and you follow the carbon law. So year two, you're down to 93. You reduce seven units. And what they say at Netflix is that those remaining 93, we will do nature climate solutions. We will invest so we come down to zero. So we're carbon neutral now, but we're still phasing out fossil fuels. That, to me, appears as a much more scientifically robust pathway. And you see a handful of companies thinking in that way. So we, we have to be very careful to keep the carbon buckets like separate, you know, it, it, it sounds a bit surprising because normally we always want to integrate, but it's just important to recognize that nature is our best friend and nature must remain our best friend. And without nature, no safe landing. And as you've pointed out, the complexity is really important too. Yes. We were discussing the importance of not trying to do simple or simpler solutions with plantation-based monocrops versus indigenous forests with biodiversity co-benefits which are more complex to measure but in the end are better for the planet Mm. so we we can't have this great disparity of cost and reward between the two Mm. so there's a there's another element to that as as the markets ramp up too and i'd love to ask you just as we're, we're starting to wrap up direct air capture as a technological solution is something that we have been working on at Arizona State University Global Futures Lab through Klaus Lochner in the Center for Negative Carbon Emissions. Mm. We just put up the first mechanical tree, which is passive direct air capture, a few weeks ago. Mm. And the fact that uh, Climeworks in Iceland Mm. has really attracted a lot of attention with its recent 600 million capital raise, using geothermal energy and then geologically storing it. So I think it's given people a lot of hope that there's an additional route that we can be looking at from a scientific perspective. We're even more excited because the mechanical tree 
is a passive air capture using solvents. And so I was very interested in asking you how we raise awareness around the the suite of Mm. solutions that are out there and how we are very careful with the narrative so that companies don't just say, oh, well, I can invest in this technological solution and continue using fossil fuels. Because as you've Mm. said, and as you have so brilliantly pointed out, the time horizon is really narrowing. So Mm. love your views on this new technological Mm. direct air capture as a potentially large-scale viable solution. Yeah, and, and you know, let, let, let me answer in what today is the correct way. It doesn't matter what my opinion is. We have no choice. It's as simple as that. And and so 10 years back, there was a lot of debate in the scientific community. Um, many were on good arguments against all forms of direct air capture. Uh, today, we have no choice. It doesn't matter what my opinion is. Again, coming back to the climate modeling, the only reason why the climate models can give us a safe landing on fossil fuel phase out at net zero world economy by 2050, I mean, rather than shutting down the world economy today, is not only because we're assuming that agriculture will go from source to sink, not only that nature will give no surprises and ocean and land ecosystems will continue to be absorbing 50% carbon dioxide, we're also assuming massive scale up of negative emissions, meaning direct air capture, meaning carbon dioxide removal, meaning CCS, meaning BECS. That is built into the models. There is no model that can, you know, or there are single models, but they assume a complete shutdown on all forms of consumption. And they have uh, uh, theoretical assumptions on on population growth going down to less than 7 billion and and really quite utopian uh, assumptions. So if you if you take any assumption on a world that continues developing economically, that continues lifting billions out of poverty, that continues being a world roughly as we recognize it today, that world will require up to 10 billion tons of carbon dioxide equivalent per year of uptake, of removal by 2070, 2080. And it needs to start scaling now. So direct air capture, uh, different forms of uh, carbon dioxide removal, are technologies that are that are you know absolutely necessary we have to get the technologies in place we have to get the policies in place we have to get the carbon pricing in place i mean the climate works is really interesting i mean they're they're today selling i don't know what the price is now but just a year back it was roughly 1100 1200 us dollars per ton of carbon dioxide you know that sounds like a very high number but as i told you before i mean that the science is moving rapidly towards 200 as a social cost of carbon the technology price is going down and the social cost is going up, you know, they will soon meet each other. And we saw so, that with renewables. No yeah. one expected the renewables would come exactly. down the cost curve as quickly as they did. So so, so this is, I think, th- this is the only responsible way of answering. But there is a but. And that is, of course, as you know better than anyone, it is so often misused. Uh, you know, the direct air capture is misused as being this, this silver bullet mm-hmm. that means let's continue burning. And, you know, that cannot be allowed. We have to simply be so... So my, my favorite word today is the boring word, additionality. You know, you have the carbon law and nature investments are additional, not substitutes. You cannot offset. You do, you do 
phase out of fossil fuels and nature investments and direct air capture, additionality. You have to do everything at the same time as fast as possible. Scale, 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 accelerate, accelerate. If we can all just, just mentally on board on that, then I think most skeptics or skeptics, those who criticize their, their, their capture will be more relaxed as well. Um, because of course there are discussions on, on the security and robustness of technologies, but, but it really boils down to this question of how, how the risk of misuse of the and technology. I think very important. We are developing also certification as part of the, the broader yeah. carbon removal partnership initiative led by the governments of Colombia, who have been the first investors in blue carbon credits uh, through a very interesting local project that the Minister of Educa uh, Environment was speaking about here earlier today, and so the government of Kenya as well. So we're seeing those in the global south also recognizing the importance of a just transition and recognizing the importance of having everybody at the policymaker mm. table. And I know you and I are going to be at Climate Week in mm. New York together, and then we're going to be together at COP27 again. Yep. What message in our last couple of minutes would you like governments who are going to be at COP27 to hear? What mm. would be your top five if we can really get governments moving. I know my top is always fossil fuel subsidies mm. uh, and people get tired of me talking about it, but until we are going in the right direction, we keep mm. increasing instead of decreasing, looking at both direct and indirect costs. What are the things that you would like mm. to leave policymakers with? Mm. Well, I mean, I think number one is really in line with what you're saying. It's really remove subsidies and introduce a price on carbon. And we could put those in, in the same camp. Get, get, you know, get the, I mean, quoting Nick Stern, you know, from the Stern Review, I mean, the, the get rid of the world's largest market failure. And it just has to be done. And it's just, uh, just pathetic and embarrassing that we haven't done it so far. So that's number one. But number two, which I think is the, was the number one line item coming out of Glasgow is, you know, you have to put in place accountability. You can, you can no longer go out with pledges and not be accountable for them. We have to shift, COP meetings must shift from being this, uh, uh, you know, just, just manifestation of all my, my nice rhetorics to be the place where we, where we monitor what people are delivering. If you promise something at one COP meeting, next meeting you'll be held accountable. It has to be quantitative, it has to be measured kilo by kilo, basically. And that, that, that's not... May I interject, because that's a really important one. And at the moment, with the nationally determined contributions, countries are self-reporting. Mm. We have a number of initiatives like Carbon Tracker, Carbon Mapper, where Greg Asner from ASU is the chief scientist, who are trying to uh, democratise mm. that process. What tips would you have on that measurement? How how should it be done to ensure that there is true accountability? Mm. Well, I, to be honest, I wouldn't I wouldn't democratize it too much, basically. I, I would I would keep it quite top down. I would try to build it into a, a an MDR scheme at the UNFCCC level so that it has to be put as part of the legally binding part of the framework. I mean I'm of the view that it was a mistake when we moved from uh, from Annex One logics in Copenhagen to the voluntary NDC approach, because the beauty of the old system was that everyone was accountable to what was 
put into the agreement. Now with the NDCs, anyone can put, I mean, everyone is obliged to do an NDC, that's legally binding, but the content are not. So, so I think it has to be ruled top down. But, but of course, it's also one of the really important things is that uh, our, our earth observations, uh, big data capabilities, we're now able to monitor individual, uh, you know, uh, industrial smokestacks in, in ways. So, so, you know, nobody should be able to hide anymore, but it has to be formalized. And, and, and my third uh, kind of top priority would really be to, to get the food system central, really central to this whole transition that you have to get. And I, I would, with food, um, you know, emphasize that the energy transition and the food transition must, must have its own, own focus. And, and, and the fourth, of course, is, is to get all the carbon sinks in nature uh, to be secured. How do we develop the carbon markets for nature in a way that they get equal attention and equal opportunity for investors as the growing carbon markets for, for fossil fuel emissions? And then finally, which will be a very central part in, in, in Egypt because it's the first COP in the global south, is of course, what do we do with, with loss and damage and adaptation? What do we do with the fairness and equity dimensions of this? And, and I would like to see a way of, of the global north once and for all helping the global south with, with investment. Not, I mean, of course, they should be continuing doing everything else. But what we need to see is that, you know, countries like, like Kenya or, or Burkina Faso cannot afford in, in, in moving, bypassing coal and the old energy systems because they cannot get the credit. And so, so for them, it isn't grid parity yet. The, the, it's the same technology. It's the same solar, solar panels, but it's just because they don't have the credit uh, competitiveness as, as uh, Germany has, they can't afford it and it doesn't become competitive. So, you know, and it's a very easy fix, really. I mean, it's a question of, of using the, the public domain to buffer and secure loans so the big investors can come in because you know, the beauty in Africa, for example, is that you still have countries where only 5-10% or even less than 5% sometimes are, they're not connected to the, to the electric grid at all. So just like when we saw the jump from no, uh, no telephone communication to mobile communication in one step, uh, you can do the same thing now, or we must do the same thing now. That's what we're doing. It's just that it's going too slowly. So I think it's a, it's a question of really recognizing that the big flow of, of investment must go south. Thank you for listening to the Global Governance Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and family. To learn more, please visit globalgovernanceforum.org and join the conversation. Fantastic. Johan Rockström, a real pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much. Wonderful to be with you. Alex was perfect. Brilliant on time. Alex, are you okay? Yeah.
Johan, you're such a, every time I hear Johan speak, I just say the man's a complete genius. No, that was no, brilliant. No, no, no. Absolutely was fantastic. Thank and you. Good, so good, many good more questions. things to talk about. But yeah, yeah exactly, it's great. But